Well, welcome back to the fourth and final episode in our study of essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the privilege we have to gather together to study your word. I pray that you would open our minds, pray that you would open our hearts, and I pray that you would use this to increase our faith, that it might go deeper, that our roots would be deep into your word, that they might withstand the joys and the trials of life. Father, it's our prayer that you would bring peace to Jerusalem. I pray, Father, for wisdom, and I pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone involved in the Middle East. Father, I pray for our leaders, that you would guide them, that you would turn them toward you. And Father, I pray that all would work according to your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here's our number for questions. I know we say that every week, but feel free to text in your questions during class, whether you're joining us online or here. We've been talking about the, some of the essentials of the Christian faith, and we got into this because we were talking about Christian unity in a study of the book of Ephesians. And the idea of believers, followers of Christ, Christians, I'll use those words interchangeably, but I really like followers of Christ. So the followers of Christ who make up the church, and in Ephesians it talks about us being of one mind and one spirit, the idea of unity. And people pursue unity whether it's in the church or in the secular world, but they pursue unity without any unifying underlying principle or agreement. We talked about different organizations. Uh, every organization has something that unifies it, some fundamental belief, and some set of parameters to know who's a member and who's not a member. That's not a negative thing, that's just what's called having a group. If you don't have that, well, you just have a collection of people. You don't have any group. So upon what are we unified? So this statement characterizes the way this church looks at the doctrines of Christianity. In essentials, we must be unified. In the essentials of the faith, we must they must be the basis of our common belief which brings us together and unifies us. The essentials of the faith, faith must be those things that are the boundaries markers of whether you are or you are not a part of this unified group of people. There are many things in the scripture that are non-essentials. I'm not saying there isn't a right or a wrong or one opinion is as good as another, I'm simply saying they're not essential to bind us together. There can be differences of conscience, differences of understanding. The way I like to say it is, you can be wrong without being evil. There is evil in the world, but sometimes we're just wrong about something without being evil. Those are the non-essentials. In other words, we can live with each other having differences of opinion on those, and in all things charity. It's the old word for love. In everything, we need to be bound together by our love for one another. Remember, Jesus said, this is how people will know you're my disciples, is that you love one another. And sometimes we tend to think about that as, well, we love everybody in the world. That's good and that's true, but that's not what he was talking about. It's more like they're gonna know this is a family because of the way you love each other and the way you act toward one another. And so in, in everything, essentials or non-essentials, love for one another. 
So we started out by talking about the authority of scripture. Without the authority, understanding or accepting the authority of the revelation of God, that we believe that the Bible is God's word revealed to us, not the philosophical musings of some people, not the philosophy of life of some smart people or righteous people or holy people. We believe that these things were inspired and revealed to us by God. And consequently, they carry authority with them. This is probably the, in my view, the major boundary marker. If you want to move outside the body of Christ, quickest and easiest way is to basically deny the authority of the scriptures. At that point, anything goes, whatever you would like. If the 10 commandments are the 10 suggestions, well, that's great, and I may ignore them. And at that point, it becomes impossible to understand what is a Christian? You really have no basis to answer that question, except from my own point of view. It's like, well, I am, and everybody should be like me. Or everybody is, it makes no sense. The authority of scripture is a foundational belief. Second is the central event of the gospel, the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. First, this is an historical event. That's what I mean when I say Christianity is a very reasonable thing to believe. It's a scientific thing to believe. What do I mean by saying that? For something to be scientifically validated, it must be falsifiable. What do I mean by falsifiable? That you can prove it wrong. No, if it's true, it's true. But there has to be some way that if it were false, you could demonstrate that. So for example, if I came up here today and I said, you know, God gave me a revelation uh, when I got up this morning and it said that every one of you should send me a million dollars. Now, you would, if you want to go ahead, by the way, I didn't really get that vision, but you can. You get my point is how could you know that's true? Well, I said so. Well, that's nice, but that's not very scientific, is it? Well, how could you know? Well, if there was some way you could disprove it, right? Well, there is no way to disprove that. Well, in that case, this is not a scientific statement, is it? Because you can't test it to say, is it true or is it not? Christianity can be tested. Meaning if Jesus Christ didn't live, if Jesus Christ wasn't crucified by Pontius Pilate, and if Jesus Christ didn't, wasn't raised on the third day, if you can demonstrate that historically, you could say, you know what? Christianity obviously is not true. Does that make sense? That's really unique. That is unlike your average religion. This is based on an historical event, events that we claim happen, events that history validates. But it's not just the event. I mean, that's important that that happen, but the scripture then tells you what does that event mean? Oh, it turns out that this is good news. You might say, well, it's neutral news, that there was a man named Jesus. He was 
crucified by Pontius Pilate, and on the third day he was raised and hundreds of people saw him. And you'd go, wow, that's never heard of that before. That's just, that's awesome. When did he live? 2,000 years ago. That's great. I'll see you later. What do you want to do for lunch? I mean, it's news, but I don't know that it's good news. Does it affect you and me? Well, the scripture says, oh, it affects everything about us. And that's the good news. The gospel is this event means something. And around the gospel is the idea that God is angry, justifiably so, at the sin and rebellion of humanity. That we are unable to be reconciled to God, but God did that for us. While we were dead, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. So that's the gospel, the essence of what we believe. Third is the nature of God. What kind of God do we serve? Do we serve a God that's far, far away? Do we serve a God that's really loving, but not very powerful? Do we serve a God that's powerful, but not very loving? And we talked about, the scripture talks a great deal about the nature of the God whom we serve. That God is sovereign, he is powerful, and he loves us. And that's unique. If you think about gods of other religions, whether it's pagan religions, whether Persians or Greeks or Romans or prehistoric pagan gods, or the gods of our culture, uh, the god of money, god of fame, god of power, etc. If you think about all of those other gods, this god is unique. This God is not like the God of Islam. This is, God is not like the Hindu gods and goddesses. If you've studied that, you'll go, the Christian God is a unique God that combines power and love. So what rounds this out for us? So in this lesson, I wanna talk about the second coming, resurrection, judgment, and eternity. And this rounds out what we believe. This part is also essential to what we believe. Let me introduce this uh, just a minute because you have two comings of Jesus Christ. Well, the Jews really weren't expecting that. If you think about the way the Old Testament is written, it's, it's actually puzzling. On the one hand, you have this image of the suffering servant. I want you to think, if you know the Old Testament stories, think about Joseph. Joseph underwent tremendous suffering in his life. Tremendously bad things happened to him. People did horrible things to him. A lot of injustice happened to him. He paid the price for other people's bad deeds. But at the end, he ends up being the one that rescues the Israelites. If you remember, he's in Egypt, there's a drought, they come down to Egypt and there's Joseph and he said, you meant all this for evil for me, but God meant it for good. And so it's turned out, he says this, it's turned out for the deliverance, salvation, rescue. It's turned out for the deliverance of many. And so you get this idea that the Messiah, the one who's going to come is gonna be like Joseph. I mean, think about Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is a beautiful passage talking about the Messiah. Uh, he was uh, crushed and oppressed for our sake. We did the bad deeds, he paid the price for it. Uh, by his stripes, we are healed. He got beaten, 
and we got declared innocent. You see that idea of the suffering servant of Joseph? But at the same time, you also have the image of the coming Messiah. And when I say Messiah, that's a Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. They mean the exact same thing. And so the coming of this Messiah or a Christ, he's also gonna be like King David, the conquering king. What did King David do? King David, you remember him with Goliath. How did he defeat Goliath? Faith. Uh, that was against all odds, but he said, I trust in God and God is gonna win this battle. That battle wasn't won because David was a good with a slingshot. That battle was won because God fought the battle for him and he believed in God, he trusted in God and God raised him up and he was able to defeat the technologically superior enemies, the Philistines, and push them back and there is a golden age in Israel's history. You have David, the faithful king, who brings prosperity and salvation from their enemies to Israel. Well, so you've got this idea of a Messiah as a conquering king. Well, the Jews, as they get closer to that time and they're expecting and looking for the Messiah, can you guess which one they were hoping for? Let's go conquering king, guys. Let's get rid of these Romans because they are making our lives awful. I mean, unbelievably bad oppression. So yeah, I want the conquering king. God send the conquering king. So Jesus comes as a suffering servant. He said, I didn't come to judge the world, it came to save the world. And that was difficult for the Jews. And so they don't see Jesus as the full Messiah. Of course, they weren't sure exactly what the full Messiah would be. How do you be a conquering king and a suffering servant? The second coming of Christ is God's answer to that. I mean, God knew this all along. He said, I'm gonna send my son as a suffering servant because if he comes as the conquering king with judgment, you don't have a chance. None of us could have withstood judgment had Jesus come on the clouds with the armies of angels and saying, who among you is righteous? Who among you is worthy? We were doomed. But God, because he loves us, said, I'll send my son as the suffering servant. Peter says, don't consider God delaying as because he's tardy. Think of it as he wants as many to be rescued as possible. And so Jesus comes as the suffering servant but he will come as the conquering king. And when you read about the second coming of Christ, it's all conquering king. King of kings and Lord of lords. With the sword of his mouth, he will slay all of the rebels on the earth. That, that, I, that kind of an idea. So this rounds out what Christians believe. We don't have Christianity without this part. So let's jump in and look at these uh, pieces one by one. So resurrection, and when I say resurrection, I'm talking about the resurrection of the dead. We've spoken about the resurrection of Christ, but that's not the whole story. This is in 1 Thessalonians. So that's a letter in the New Testament written to churches to reassure them. Paul says this as he's writing, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Yes, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him at the second coming, those who have died. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, meaning I didn't make this up. This is what God says. 
we will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, think conquering king, voice of an archangel, sound of a trumpet, and all those who have died in Christ, meaning all the followers of Christ who have physically died will rise from the dead. Then we who are alive, who are left at that coming, will also be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. So this idea of the resurrection of the dead, just fundamental to Christianity. What it means is that death is not the end. And that has huge implications for how you live your life. Secular-minded people, when I say secular, what I mean is people whose view of life encompasses this universe, this physical body and its physical life, and that's all there is. Secular versus transcendent would be the opposite, that there's more than you can see in the universe, that there's more to this life than the 60, 70, 80, 100 years that this body is gonna last. Those who are secular-minded and do not see an eternity, do not see anything transcendent, that is gonna affect how you live your life. You have more in common with a follower of Christ who lives in the deepest part of Africa that you can imagine, whose culture is 100% different than yours and mine. You have more in common with that person than you do with your secular next door neighbor. The things you have in common with your secular next door neighbor are superficial. You know, college football, golf, Christmas decorations. The fundamental view of life of Christ followers it's the same. And you, you have a lot in common because of this idea. Death is not the end. And what that means is Christianity is not just a philosophy of life. It's more than a bunch of rules to live a good life, more than, hey, if you live your life this way, it's the best way to live your life. I, I'm not a fan of when we preach Christ in a way that says, this is the best way to live your life. It is, if you understand eternity, absolutely. Is it the best way to live your life if there is no eternity? I would argue no. Why? Look at the Apostle Paul. So Paul's got an up and coming career. He's on a trajectory. He's in the Young Executive Development Program of Judaism. He's gonna be on the Sanhedrin someday. He's sharp. He's on his up and coming. He's persecuting Christians. He becomes a Christian. What does the rest of his life look like? He goes around preaching a message that people are trying to kill him for. He gets beaten up almost everywhere he goes. He gets arrested and put in jail because what he's preaching is so dangerous to the Jewish authorities, ultimately the Romans get wind of it and said, hey, you're preaching that there's some other king. There's another Lord besides Caesar. I think we're gonna cut your head off. And they do. Was that the best life? No, not by worldly standards, is it? Not by secular standards. We live to follow Christ because we believe this is true. And we understand that there's more 
than just this life. If you have a secular mindset, and I know I'm getting off track a little, but I want you to see the implications of what you believe. They're profoundly different. If you believe in life after death, which we surely do, then you actually have a way to deal with hard times in this life. If you're a secular person, you are out of luck. Your strategy for dealing with hard times is do anything you can to avoid it, and when you get in it, do everything you can to blame someone else for it. In fact, sue if you can. Does that describe our society? That exactly describes our society. Why? Because there's no point in hard times and suffering and bankruptcy and illness and the things that happen to it. For a Christian, oh, they're not pleasant. But when you put that in eternity, all of a sudden, suffering is redeemed. God says, I can use that for good. Your secular neighbor, there is no good that comes out of suffering. This is a profound point of view, and I just want us to understand that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Christianity is a waste of time. He says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you wanna know what your best life looks like? Eat, drink, and be merry, because you are gonna die. Does that make sense? You see the very different point of view, but that's not what we believe. We believe that we will indeed be raised again. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, I means someone will be alive at the coming of Christ, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, now remember the coming of Christ, archangel, trumpet sounds, in a moment, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. In other words, we will trade, he goes on in chapter 15 with a really solid argument to say, look, this body is perishable like a seed that goes in the ground, but it will be raised imperishable. This body gets sick. In eternity, you don't get sick. This body aches and pains and temporary. This body is full of desires and lust and, and uh, pride and all kinds of things. Not so with the new body. So the idea of a bodily resurrection that we will be as we were intended to be is, is a fundamental Christian belief. Well, what happens after we're raised? It's like, well, there you go. We got... The good, the bad, the ugly, everybody gets raised from the dead. What then? The scripture says judgment. In other words, there has to be an accounting. Those who are slaves to sin, those who are slaves to righteousness, those who pursue self-gratification, those who follow Jesus Christ. The scripture talks more about judgment than you would believe. And I'm just going to give you maybe five little passages here. And I don't want you to say that Jesus talks about judgment a lot just because he's negative. It's just that judgment is an integral part. If indeed there's a resurrection of the dead, then there must be an accounting for it. In fact, I'm going to argue that you can't have justice without an accounting of what we have done. Well, here's Jesus in John chapter 5. Truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, think condemnation, but is passed from death to life. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What he's saying there euphemistically is those who place their trust in Christ will live and those who reject it will not. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, again, Jesus, uh, once again, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, second coming, conquering king, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, think all the people that have ever lived, Jews, non-Jews, all people, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And this story goes on and you see that those on the left will be cast out. In other words, there's a separation, there's a judgment based on those who place their trust in Christ and those who do not. Again, this is the book of Revelation. So this is a vision God gave to John and he's foreseeing, God is telling him, this is what it looks like. This judgment, I'm gonna put some, a little more framework around it. So in Revelation chapter 20, he says, then I saw a great white throne. This is after the resurrection and second coming of Christ in the book of, of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. Earth and sky, this universe is done. It's gone. And I saw the dead, great and small, whether you were important in life, you were unimportant in life, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Sea gave up the dead that was in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is judgment scene. And Jesus talked a lot about it because it's essential to the Christian faith that there is an accounting. On a philosophical level, think about the idea of why is death thrown into the lake of fire? Adam and Eve were never intended to die. They were not intended to have bodies that wore out. They're not intended to die. But sin broke the whole universe. Sin marred our image and the fall of humanity. What is the fall of humanity? We became corruptible and now every one of us has to go through the door of death. We're still created in the image of God. We still have an eternity. Nevertheless, this body 
is corrupted. This universe is corrupted. That's why the universe itself is ended. It's dissolved at the end. There's a new heavens and a new earth. But basically, you get this idea that the fall of humanity made death come into being. And if you remember Jesus, he goes to Lazarus' tomb. So this is, and those of you that don't know this story, that's okay, just think that one of Jesus' friends died. He comes a few days later, he's dead, he's in the grave, and Jesus raises him from the dead. He just says, Lazarus, come out. He comes out of the grave and he's like, oh my goodness, this guy's alive. Now he's gonna die again and he'll be raised at the end like everyone else. But here's the interesting thing, before he does that, he weeps and he's angry. Why is he angry? Because death was never part of the plan. Death was something God never intended for it to happen to us. It's sin that caused that. Do you get a sense of the anger of God at sin and its consequences and those who do sin and its consequences? Is Jesus was angry because this was never supposed to happen to us, to the children of the world. This sin was never supposed to have a place here. And he's angry at that sin. So why is there a judgment? Why is there a lake of fire? Why is there this, uh, this consequence, if you will? I'm gonna suggest to you that there's no such thing as justice without judgment. So think about, in our country, there are certain places, this is just a matter of fact, this is not a political statement, just read the news, look at the stats. This is so obvious. There are certain places in our country that are trying an interesting experiment. And this experiment is called no judgment. You get arrested, and a few hours later, you're out. You familiar with this? It's kind of been a big thing in the news for the last couple of years in America, certain places. Well, look at the statistics of that. And my point's not political, my point is eternal. And that is, what happens if you do bad and you get arrested and you walk out? with no consequences. Well, it probably doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, but what does the data show? Crime goes way up, doesn't it? Of course it goes way up. And do people feel like justice is being done? No, they don't feel like justice is being done. What about the victims of these crimes? They're crying out saying, wait a minute, where's, where's the justice in this? Judgment is essential for justice to happen. Now you can argue what judgment should it look like? Is the judgment just or unjust? Is it fair or unfair? Is it biased or is it unbiased? This lady, you know, the scales of justice, are they really blind or is she peeking to see who's really out there and I'm gonna do something different for different people? You could argue about that, but you really can't argue about the fact that without a judgment, there's no justice. And that's wired into us, hardwired into us. So the question then becomes, the resurrection and the judgment is, when will this happen? And so I thought we'd take a brief detour because if I were you, I'd be asking, I'd say, how long, Terry, do I have to clean up my act? <laughs> you know I'm joking. It's not about you cleaning up your act. It's all about placing our faith in Christ. But when is this gonna happen? Well, that is not an essential. Oh, judgment is an essential belief, but exactly how and when is this gonna happen? 
I'm not telling you all the three views I'm about to show you are correct. I'm just saying they're all sincerely held and they might be correct because the scripture isn't definitive. This isn't disputable issue. This is one that's not essential, but I wanna show you a couple things. So first, when is this all gonna happen? This question uh, is answered primarily in Western Christianity in three ways. What's called, this is the most popular view, dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism is a roadmap of when these things will happen. Okay, so you and I are right here. This is us. Hi. Uh, we're living in the church age. So here we are between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the chronology is very linear. You've probably seen this chart before if you've been in my Revelation class. But what's gonna happen is in this view, there's gonna be a rapture of the people that are Christians that are alive when this tribulation happens. And then there's gonna be seven years of very specific bad things that are going to happen. And then you'll see the second coming of Christ, conquering king. And after Jesus rules for a thousand years here on earth, then you will see the judgment and then you will see eternity. And I want you to notice that this is a way of looking at when will these things happen, not will these things happen. You notice all three of the things that we think are essential are here. The second coming of Christ, judgment, and eternity. Resurrection. So all of these things are in this view, but this view has a particular way of thinking of when will these things happen. Well, there's another view that's not as popular, but used to be the most popular view in Christianity. Here we are again, still in the church. Well, we're somewhere along here in this view. That's us. And we've got a Bible in our hand because we're out preaching the gospel. And the world's getting better, meaning more and more people are coming into the kingdom of God and leaving the kingdom of death, kingdom of Satan. They're leaving, they're being freed from the slavery to sin to come follow Christ. And Jesus said, for freedom, I came to set you free, right? And so, preaching. And somewhere in here, the tribulation and the thousand year reign kind of all happened together. And then you will have the second coming of Christ and the final judgment happens right then. This is chapter 20 of Revelation. And then on into eternity. So this is a different chronology, isn't it? You don't have a rapture. You don't have a specific seven years of tribulation. You don't really have a specific thousand year millennium. It's a different way of understanding the book of Revelation. But you have all the essentials, don't you? Second coming, judgment, and eternity. One more view. This view is actually gaining in popularity today. And it is the idea of understanding the when. Of course, you have the cross of Christ. You have the first coming. You have the second coming. And here we are living here. And we actually have all kinds of stuff happening on. We're in the rule, the millennial reign of Christ. We are in the kingdom of God. Christ reigns in this body through the authority of the scripture, right? Who, who is in charge? God is in charge. Not Terry, not you. God tells us what is true, what is just, what is right through his revealed word to us. 
So we are in the kingdom of God and we are in a time of tribulation. You're like, well, you don't have to convince me of that, Terry. I've read the papers, right? And you see evil is also looking for converts out there in the world, aren't they? But look what's here. A second coming of Christ, the final judgment, and eternity. So why am I showing you these? I'm showing you these because I thought this was a good opportunity to demonstrate the difference between an essential of the faith and something that is important, but the when of the faith, the timeline is not an essential of the faith. Meaning, I'm not saying all three of these are right, I'm just saying when you read the book, you can get one of these three views out of it. And they're all Christian, and they're all, you're still in the club, right? If you believe these three things. What are you not in the club? Jesus isn't coming back. That's an essential of the faith. So I just thought this might be a good opportunity to contrast that a little bit. Question. Yes, so what is the point of the thousand years? Why does Jesus have to reign on this earth if it's going to be destroyed? Yes, okay, so one of these three views see Jesus reigning for a thousand years on earth in Jerusalem and here's the short version of this. I won't do it justice, but here's, here's the short version. Is when God promised Abraham that he would have a people, he would have a nation, and he would bless all of the nations of the earth through him. Some of those you can see have come true. Jesus Christ, he has blessed all of the nations. Anyone can place their trust in Christ. You don't have to be a Jew to place your trust in Christ. You don't have to be an American to place your trust in Christ. Anyone can. So you can see some of those promises have come true. This view does not believe that all of the promises to Abraham have been fulfilled yet. And the thousand years, this is the short version, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth is the fulfillment of some of those promises. And then you have the resurrection of the dead and judgment and all. In other words, you may agree with that view, you may disagree with that view, but it has the essentials in it. You may disagree on the, on the non-essentials, but fundamentally, it is a matter of finishing some of the promises to Abraham. Other views would say, I think he, he's already finished that. So there's a, there's a disagreement there, but it's about a, a non-essential issue. Okay. Um, in the slide that's up on amillennialism, mm -hmm. if Satan's power is restrained, does that mean that all evil in the world comes from fallen humanity? Good question. So yeah, this is just happens to be on the chart and, and it is a belief of amillennialism. They're, they all actually have this kind of view of Satan being bound. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, you see this idea that for the millennium, Satan is bound. Does not necessarily mean Satan isn't able to do things in the earth. It doesn't mean that Satan doesn't have an influence in the earth. So to answer that question very specifically, does that mean that every bad thing that's happening is human caused? Well, I would argue that that could be because I think we're doing a pretty good job, you know, but most Christians also think Satan's influence is here. Here's the scary part of this. You think about how bad the world is today in this view, the world is only as good as it is today because of God's mercy in restraining Satan, 
Think restrain rather than bound. That might be a little better way to understand that. In restraining Satan. When Satan is unrestrained, oh my goodness. You have no idea of the depths to which humanity can sink. So that's the view from this, from this point of view. And there's a lot to be said for that. So, good question. Um, in light of our bodily resurrection, what does God say about burial versus cremation? That's, that's a good question. What does God say about burial versus cremation? Burial and cremation are customs. So from the point of view of the resurrection of the dead, you're not, this body is not the one you're going to be stuck with. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, you get an imperishable body. This body came from the dust. God can make an imperishable body, right? So this, in other words, this body is not like, okay, I got to put Terry back together. It's not a Humpty Dumpty thing, okay? We're not putting ourselves back together. We're getting a brand new imperishable body. So from a scriptural perspective, preserving this body, which I don't want to get gruesome, but even if you're buried, you know, this body isn't all that well preserved, right? Okay, so what if you, your body is lost in, God forbid, war or something like that, and you just, you're blown up or something like that? I, I want to set your mind at rest. None of that matters for God's ability to raise the dead and to give you a new body. Now, should you be buried or cremated, that's a custom. It's not essential. It's not like, oh no, you were cremated. I can't do anything with ashes. You know, no, of course not. But that is a customary thing. And by the way, it's changing. A Christian custom has traditionally been burial. Well, in, in our custom, that's not always been the case for Christians throughout 2000 years. But in our recent time in America, burial has been that because of this idea that, well, God needs my bones, kind of Ezekiel, the dead bones rise up and he makes the bodies out of it. That's more superstition than reality, so, but it's become our custom. And so I would say that burial and cremation are customs. And so we see more and more people being cremated in America in general and even among Christians. So that is a good question, but I would set your mind at rest that this particular body, in whatever form it may be, is not necessary for God to raise us and give us an imperishable body. Good question. Okay, so when someone dies, at the time that they are separated from their body at death, is their spirit in heaven, or are they waiting for the second coming of Christ? Great question. So when you die, are you with God in heaven or are you waiting? This is also a non-essential belief of Christianity. Why do I say that? Because you get to the same place. It's sort of like these three views. Notice what they all have. They all have second coming. They all have judgment. They all have eternity. As far as the when is this gonna happen and where does the soul reside, you really have three choices and one of them is that uh, if you aren't going to pass judgment, I mean, let's say you're not a believer in Christ, I guess you could go straight to hell, but there's nothing in the Bible to say that. 
Some people believe that you go directly to heaven, but those who are condemned don't. It's not like you go and they go, hey, here you go, but you're provisional, okay? It's like, you were working on this, but you're provisional, right? No, that's not, the scripture doesn't talk about that. So some, in all seriousness, some Christians do believe that you immediately are approved and go to Christ. And there are scriptures that kind of would lead you to think that. Others believe in what's called soul sleep, and that's just a made up word that means when you die, your soul awaits the second coming of Christ, which on this earth may be a long, long time, but in eternity is nothing. It's sort of like when you go to sleep and you wake up, if you've ever been put under, this is even better, if you've ever been put under anesthetic and you come out of a, maybe a minor procedure, you don't know if you've been under for an hour or 500 years. I mean, you have no sense of time whatsoever, do you? Well, I would just encourage you to say that people believe that, that say, well, you close your eyes in death, you open your eyes, and the very next thing you see is Jesus Christ. When does that happen temporally? Right away or at the second coming? I think the script, and there are scriptures that kind of indicate both. Why do they indicate both? Are they contradictory? No, I just think you can't understand eternity in temporal terms. Does that make sense? If you ask God, do you go right away or do you wait till the second coming? He'd probably go, yeah. <laughs> so those are the two major views. That's not an essential of the faith. So you may be persuaded of one or the other, but it's not an essential of the faith. Now I know what you're thinking. It's like, wow, this has been really interesting, but I sure hope he talks about hell. Okay, well, let's talk about it. So what happens after judgment? How are we, what's our disposition? Well, I'm gonna quote Jesus again, and just a little bit. Matthew 13, he says, he's telling a story about judgment. And he says, there was a farmer, had a field, and he planted wheat, and an enemy came in and planted a bunch of weeds. And they start growing up. You may remember this story. He said they start, because he's, he's telling this story to explain judgment, right? And so he says, and so they start growing up, and the servants go, man, somebody planted weeds in your field. Should we go dig them up? He says, no, because when you're digging up the weeds, you might dig up some of the wheat, and I can't have that. He said, I'll tell you what, just let it go because when they mature, it'll be obvious. And so this is what he's talking about. He said, at that point, we'll gather up the weeds and we'll burn them and then we'll harvest the wheat. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's a way of talking about judgment. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all those who cause sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. This is why hell is always thought of as a place of fire, is because of the imagery that Jesus uses. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, the wheat, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear, is a, is a Hebrew way of saying, better pay attention to what I'm saying. So what's he saying is he says the weeds, those who are disobedient, the goats, he uses a lot of metaphors to explain this idea. That's, this is what the disposition is. Uh, again, one more. Um, There's not all, this is one more. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net 
that was thrown into the sea and gathered up a fish of all different kinds. They're like over a hundred species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. So you get your net, you pull them up, you just get everybody. Think the resurrection of the dead, everybody's raised. When it was full, men drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good fish into containers and they threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is our idea of hell. The disposition, the eternal disposition of those who are in rebellion against God. Those who uh, do not place their trust in Christ. Those who are not reconciled to God. All those are, are the same way of saying the same thing. Hell is not really suitable to our current American sensibilities unless something really terrible has happened to you. And then you think, if there's no hell, there's no justice. But to us, it seems out of proportion. It seems like, can we just do away with that? Can't we just all have a Coke, hold hands, sing Kumbaya? No, we cannot. Uh, and the idea of hell seems to us that way because we don't have a very good sense of justice. We don't have a very good balance. Now, I'm gonna give you two ideas of what is, what is hell. C.S. Lewis, and I'm not endorsing these two views, but I wanna give you a way of thinking about it. C.S. Lewis said that the door to hell is locked on the inside. What does he mean by that? His theology is not always maybe right on, but, but his point is well made, and that is that God is doing the judging. Don't kid yourself, God is sovereign. He is the judge. But C.S. Lewis is saying, but he did everything he could to give everyone a chance. Remember the scripture says, God wants everyone to be saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that all who placed their trust in him could be saved, okay? But that is not the case, and so God disposes of humanity. He does justice. So what C.S. Lewis, though, is turning the lens a little, and he said, you know, there's a sense in which you can look at this that we pick hell. Now, he's not saying God's not sovereign, but he's saying we locked the door on the inside. We already rejected God. N.T. Wright says it a little bit differently, and this one's particularly a good way to think about it. He says, think about living a life in rebellion against God. And here's the way I'm gonna describe it. Think about leading a self-absorbed life. It's about me, it's not about God. I'll live life my way. I'm gonna look out for number one. I want fame, power, uh, power, money, whatever it may be, pride. I'm living, serving the God of me, effectively, really. He says, I want you to think about that. You probably know people like that. And they might be nice to their friends, but you, you can see that over time, people that live self-absorbed lives, you don't like them, do you? No. Imagine that extended into eternity. If you get a self-absorbed 30-year-old, well, that's one thing, and that's not good. Now imagine someone who's lived 50 years of a self-absorbed life. Well, okay, that's worse. Now imagine someone who lives forever in a self-absorbed way. N.T. Wright says hell is the inevitable trajectory of choosing that kind of life. 
How would you like to live with people who are all self-absorbed narcissists and they've been that way for 200,000 years or a million years? So N.T. Wright is saying, if you wanna know what hell's like, it's probably the inevitable consequences extended out into eternity of that kind of lifestyle. I'm not telling you these are necessarily scriptural, but they're really good little word pictures, aren't they? To help you kind of understand what Jesus is talking about. Question? In the Apostles' Creed, it says that um, he descended into hell, Jesus. Can you expound upon um, what exactly that means and what was Christ's purpose for going to hell? Good question. Uh, I'll give you the short answer to this. And there, there's some different points of view, but let me try to just navigate the middle of the river on this one. Uh, this idea of Christ descended into hell is not spelled out entirely clearly, but there's scripture that talks about this. So I want you to imagine what happens. So think of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is bearing the sin of the world. And God hates sin and Jesus is all alone. He is covered with the sin, the rebellion, the narcissism, the self-absorption, the murder, the cheating, the stealing, the lying of all of us are on him. And so he dies and, and Satan says, oh, you are mine. You should have taken my deal. I could have given you the kingdoms of the earth. And you said no, and look at you, you are mine. You're bearing the sins of the world. And so there's a sense in which Jesus descends into hell and Satan says, welcome, you're mine now. But Satan made a really big miscalculation because what he doesn't understand is Jesus lived the perfectly faithful life. And so death cannot hold him. And Satan has no claim. And Satan realizes oh my goodness, you didn't sin, you just paid the mortgage for everybody else. Colossians says it this way, that Christ on the cross, that death, burial, resurrection, nailed our mortgages, if you will, to the cross. It's like Satan says, you won't believe how many people, when they die, they're mine, because I got a mortgage on their soul because they're rebellious against God. And he realizes when Jesus is there that Jesus just paid everybody's mortgage. Does that make sense? So Jesus does indeed go to hell, but death cannot hold him. And he raised from the dead. And now we have a mortgage-free life. Placing our trust in Christ, our sins are gone. We look white as snow. That's the gospel. And so I would, that's not a theologically very uh, pointed answer, but think about it in that way, is that Jesus entered hell on our behalf and he came out victorious. Remember when the scripture also talks about, the, all these things are gonna make sense, that when the son of man is lifted up, he brought many in his train. What does that mean? He brought many with him. When Jesus left hell, he had a lot of canceled mortgages with him, yours and mine. It's just a beautiful picture. Is there anything in the Bible that talks about um, us getting another chance to accept Jesus before death? Or a specific verse that points to when at the point of death or before judgment, there is another chance? 
Yeah, good question. Is there anything in the scripture about getting another chance? Okay, I'm gonna tread lightly on this. First of all, kind of the whole love wins concept, like everybody ends up going to heaven. Uh, this was a book that became popular a while back, uh, you know, that everybody's gonna end up going to heaven. God just loves you that much. And even if you go to hell, you eventually love will win you over and you won't stay there. Uh, nothing in the scripture about that. In fact, that's, let me just say, that would pretty much go against some of the essentials of what the scripture teaches. But there are interesting little hints in the scripture that those who died before Christ, because everybody comes to the Father through Christ. We say, well, how can that happen if they lived before Christ? You know, following the law was an act of faith. And you had faith, you didn't see Christ, but you trusted God. There are hints in the scripture, and I'll just leave it at that, that there is in some sense that those who have died also have this opportunity to trust in Christ. Now, I know in our human mind, we'd say, well, I guess everybody there is gonna go, okay, I'm in. The scripture's not very clear about it, so let me put it this way. If you and I think we're gonna get a second chance, there's nothing in the scripture that talks about that. If you wanna look at people before Christ, there is a sense in which Christ is the door of salvation for everyone, but that's a little murky. But let me just say this. There's nothing in the scripture that says you and I know about Jesus Christ. We have a choice to make. And so I, I don't want you to walk out of here saying, live like I want, because I'll probably get another chance. Maybe later, maybe in purgatory, maybe love really does win. Maybe there really is no justice in the universe. That's not true. So great question. Okay, well, far be it for me to uh, leave you with this idea of hell. I wanna say this one thing about why is hell and essential of the faith. I'll tell you what's enough for me because Jesus said there is one. Jesus believed that there was a hell. So when you hear Christians say, well, yeah, but that's not really fair. And so maybe hell isn't really hell. I just, I want you to, that should bring up some alarm bells because I've shown you just three or four things Jesus talked about that. He talked about a lot more than that because he wants us to understand that there are consequences, that God is a just God. And that you, and that's why he told us, get out there and tell people about the good news of being reconciled uh, to God, that hell is real. And so is heaven. Heaven is a biblical concept. And I, now I've met a lot of people that have a hard time with hell, but I've never had anybody that had a hard time with heaven. Had met people that have different views of heaven, but I've never had anybody who say, I, I don't think there ought to be a heaven. I shouldn't go, no, haven't heard that. But there is a heaven, and, but what is heaven? In Revelation 21, it describes it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because not only were we corrupted, this whole universe was corrupted. A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What's that sound like? That's so Garden of Eden, isn't it? God walked, as it's, everything has come back and been restored, redeemed to the way it was meant to be. Listen to this, this is how it was meant to be. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people 
and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, nor will there be mourning or crying or pain. All those things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, and they were written down to encourage you and me. This is what heaven is like, is being in the presence of God. So if you think God is the best golf course that you've ever seen, that's actually hell. Because you won't play any better then than you do now. Okay, so that's not heaven, all right? No, in all seriousness, heaven is being with God. Jesus describes it in John 15, like saying, in my Father's house there are many rooms. You, you, I bet every single one of us can think of a time when we were not at home. Maybe you were away at college, maybe you were off on a long trip, maybe you were in the military and you were deployed, but you have this longing to be with those that you love. And can you remember coming home? It's like the best feeling in the world. And all of us have some measure of that feeling. I want you to think about the ultimate coming home feeling. I'm home, I'm safe, I'm loved, I'm with the people that I care about. That's heaven. Heaven is that experience in the Bible. So we could put all kinds of uh, metaphors around it and they're good, that's fine if they help us, but fundamentally, heaven is not about what God gives you. Heaven is about actually being with God. And the joy of that is what sustains our life now. This acceptance, Tim Keller said it this way. He said, I'm gonna shorthand it a little bit, but he said, and this is true, the deepest desire of each of us is to be completely known. But the greatest fear we have is to be known and not accepted, not loved. If we're accepted and loved but not known, that's superficial, isn't it? He says the deepest desire is to be fully known and loved. That's what being with God is like. What we most deeply want is to be completely transparently known and embraced by God. That's what heaven is. And so, as we've gone through the essentials of the faith, hopefully this is kind of food for thought to you to understand what are the things that which we hold on to that we are unified, and perhaps we hold tightly to those, maybe hold a little more loosely to the things that I might say, well, I don't read the scriptures that way and I think you're wrong. And if you just study a little more, you'll agree with me. That's what Paul said. I'm not suggesting you do that, but that could be true. But that's not essential. We can be unified around these essentials of the faith, okay? Well, I appreciate your, your attention to that, and hopefully, again, it's food for thought. What are we doing next? Well, our church is taking a little break for the next couple of weeks, but we do a three-week series through the month of December. It actually starts on November 29th, December 6th and 13th, and we'll have a class in here. And Bill Search, great teacher, is gonna do a series on the family tree of Jesus. So we went to Ancestry.com, got some DNA, figured it out, and Bill's gonna tell you all about the ancestry of Jesus. Thank you guys very much.